Hi, friends, and welcome to part two of our conversation with Chen Chen about the discipline of sport management. In part one of this two-part series on everyone's favorite discipline, we covered really sport management from the perspective of what sport management does as a site of uh, sort of institutionalizing a managerial, which is to say pro-capitalist and um, extraction-friendly model of sport governance. Uh, Derek, did you have any takeaways or reflections you wanted to kind of add on that, on that earlier discussion before we, we set up what's coming in this second part? No, I think it was a brilliant discussion. Um, I, I think um, one of the things that I sort of pushed back on is this idea that um, sports management is orbiting um, the, the current sports system. And I, and I question whether or not it's po- it's, it will ever be possible to uh, understand um, or to be a sort of, quote, critical scholar operating in a function that is fundamentally, by definition, by foundation, always orbiting a system that produces such harm. And you can say that about every, almost every discipline. Um, but I think there are disciplines that um, uh, allow a little bit more wiggle room, if that makes sense, and, and allow a bit more agency to do that work. And, and I'm often thinking about this in my sort of other discipline of criminology. It's a, it's a field that's similar to sports management, and I've tweeted about this, in terms of it is a, an entire discipline that orbits something so in, incredibly foundationally harmful um, that it's hard to imagine a, a critical insight within that discipline ever being, one, accepted, or two, um, useful. Uh, and and productive, and this is something I'm constantly kind of negotiating in my own mind. Um, uh, by yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, no, just because as, as Chen pointed out, like we have to understand sport management as emerging out yeah. of business schools, yes. essentially, yeah. right? Schools of management that is the epistemological project of sport management, and of course, like the sort of the project of the end of sport is in a sense, fundamentally anti-capitalist. Yeah. So there's really nothing that could be emerging out of a business school that we would consider to be um, a sort of, we, we kind of, we get into this sort of question of legitimacy in these conversations, but like, you know, to go back to that word, like a legitimate way of uh, practicing pedagogy because mm-hmm. what it means to teach management from the perspective of a business school is to naturalize capitalism, is to say that the purpose and project of management is to extract and maximize value. And from an anti-capitalist perspective, that just doesn't add up, right? Because we have other foundational ethical questions that undergird what we consider to be just practices in the world, meaningful practices in the world. And that managerial perspective just doesn't fundamentally does not align with them. So although we can and we do in these conversations critique higher education more broadly and its yeah. political economy, and we should, because I think that as, as Chen has rightly pointed out, it would be wrong to say that there are any spaces in yeah. higher education, as is constituted, especially in North America today, yeah. that are not training people to be subjects of capitalism. Yeah. They're, they're doing that. that that's, a, that's a legitimate, going back to that word, critique. Yeah. Yet, at the same time, this is a tension, epistemologically, if you locate the study of sport in a more humanistic or even social scientific, but then we're already getting into a kind of danger zone, yeah disciplinary space we are then invited to come at sport in a slightly different way that isn't at least foundationally grounded in extraction right or exploitation because at least things like aesthetic and representational considerations for instance are things that are being taken into account if not you know questions of labor and inequality which i would hope are becoming more central to disciplines like sociology, history, um, and certainly, of course, always cultural studies. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard hard to imagine. And and that's one of my issues with criminology. It's like, as let's just distinguish it from sociology. Is that even possible? Like, is is coming at your work even possible 
um, in a quote unquote more humanistic way. Um, and I, I think with sports management and criminology really share a lot of the question. I, I think they seem more, it seems more impossible than in other disciplines. Right, exactly. And so I, I would hope that like a critical sports studies perspective is one that is yeah. starting from yeah. a kind of from like normative questions, quite frankly, as opposed to pragmatic managerial questions, normative questions, and and then to a secondary degree, aesthetic questions as yeah. ones that guide the kinds of inquiry that are happening. Yeah, if you haven't um, listened, so kind of, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, go back and and I think Chen ties this up perfectly at the end when we talk about identity. Um, as a scholar, I think he ties all of this the, just so beautifully, ties it all together. That's right. So what we do in this second installment is we kind of move from that kind of foundational understanding of what sport management is and why it has to be understood from a kind of anti-capitalist lens mm-hmm. uh, into this conversation where we start to focus then on the very much related and imbricated questions of race, colonialism, and internationalization as they are associated with the kind of pro-capitalist managerial project of sport management and how thinking through those sort of intersections and aspects of inequality within the discipline really help us understand the harm that is structurally embedded in sport management today. And I will once again repeat the disclaimer that we offered at the beginning of the last episode for those who have not heard the last episode, which is this is not directed as a personal attack at anyone involved in the field of sport management, which has become the hegemonic site of sport studies in higher education in North America today. This is in a way, as Chen has kind of put it, an invitation to those involved in sport management in whatever way to kind of think with us about ways of challenging and pushing back against this structure that has become so dominant and has come to form thinking around sport in the academy. Um, But we understand that people are involved with sport management for all sorts of reasons that really are not consensual. And so no one needs locate themselves as inherently identified with sport management in the way that we are understanding and figuring sport management as a structure and institution in this conversation. So with that said, enjoy part two of our wonderful discussion with Chen Chen. hope that we have uh, in higher education as as anyone who is critical and or revolutionary is tenure Um, and that's why we we're seeing such a war on tenure and that's also why we're seeing such a an increase and um, um, some of the things that we're seeing around us in terms of labor of uh, precarious workers that's why i think we're also seeing why we've seen the development of uh, precarious work so strongly it's because tenure is actually um, the, uh, the I think the most useful tool of um, uh, critical dialogue and even the war on tenure has many 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 academics um, uh, for good reason um, frightened to say certain things so that should also be noted in this conversation but let's put a cap on that one um, I know we can go on that forever but this is related this question that we have is a little bit related it's about the academic job market um, and it's obviously incredibly bleak, um, particularly for humanities. Um, and that's a fact understood all too well by anyone who has spent time in graduate school or beyond in the academy. Yet, and I acknowledge that I'm saying this anecdotally um, uh, rather than scientifically, I, I think we can be extremely confident in making the claim that uh, the market positions uh, for, or the market for positions in sport management, um, are, it's positively flourishing in comparison, and that's important in comparison to other disciplines like sociology, uh, like history, um, history of sport, and quite frankly, even kinesiology, um, which are all um, similar disciplines or can be similar disciplines to sport management. What are the implications of that for the study of sport? Yes, I would say that your anecdotal observation, I'm afraid, is, is accurate. And uh, before coming on the show, I actually, you know, go back and uh, did a little bit of a, of a, of a study of, again, the history of sport management programs. And um, as I kind of touched upon earlier, 
you know, some of the early sport management programs were housed in physical education departments or kinesiology departments. And there has been a notable, visible trend in the last two, three decades for sport management programs to be transitioned into business school. And uh, many of the notable programs, some of the bigger programs, are housed in business schools in the United States um, specifically. So, what does that mean? I would say that sport management programs draw a lot of students into the program, which bring in revenues, which make the department. Uh, be able to demand resources to support those students. And institutionally, it has this power. It has this benefit. And on top of that, I would say that, um, obviously, with increased amount of students, there is a demand for faculty members to serve, quote-unquote, serve those students. Yeah. And uh, a lot of times, besides the... Uh, basic undergraduate or graduate programs. Um, there are also uh, programs for certificate or executive training that are happening within sport management programs for people who work in industry, in the sport industry, to uh, come to the program, take some courses with uh, an updated uh, page of CV saying that I have obtained this certificate, this executive training in this sponsored name, sport management program at mm -hmm. this university. So, so I say all of that to say this. I would say that um, it is it it is providing a lot of job opportunities for sport management doctoral students, graduates. And increasingly, there are also folks trained in sports sociology and sport history being employed in sport management degree programs. So I, I don't think this conversation is necessarily different from what I said earlier, what we mm -hmm. discussed earlier. It presents challenges for critical perspectives about the sport industry critical perspectives about how the sport industry in North America should be understood in the global context mm -hmm. to be delivered to students in North America. And, uh, and I think um, there, the, demand of, the demand for research productivity in these programs as they compete for you know, higher rankings in mm -hmm. rankings provided by some uh, agencies, perhaps funded by the sport industry, mm -hmm. also demands or encourage rather certain types of scholarship to be produced um, within amongst the ranks of our colleague. So I think it presents a challenge for critical knowledge production to happen. It presents a challenge for a type of education that not only trains students to be skillful workers in the industry, but also possess a critical consciousness, mm -hmm. a critical understanding of the sport industry, but also a critical consciousness of what the sport industry has done, what the sport industry, uh, what kind of impact the industry has on not only the people here, but elsewhere in the world. So I would say that again, with the proliferation and constant job openings, there also presents opportunities of interventions. Maybe more critical scholars can find jobs potentially because there is a demand for people who can't provide certain types of labor for sport management programs. So I think the important question here is how our, you know, critical colleagues, young scholars can be skillful 
in presenting themselves to be uh, qualified in those jobs and, uh, you know, occupy a position and make an impact. Yeah, and I, I think you're speaking to the gargantuan task that this might be to kind of change the system. And, and I'm, I'm a, to be honest, I'm a little bit surprised um, that you seem more optimistic in this field than me. I thought for sure I would, uh, I'd be talking to someone who is um, uh, less optimistic. But just in similar with my experience, my experiences with uh, criminology, um, teaching abolition to students, I, I, I see uh, I'm very pessimistic about the possibility um, for, for changes, even uh, if there are minor, and I do think that they are minor shifts um, within fields to accept critical lenses. I think um, they're ephemeral shift, shifts, if we will, uh, and, and perhaps um, a little bit of performance by our institutions and the growing, um, or uh, it's growing in some areas, uh, field of uh, EDI and move towards uh, EDI. But I think all that is a question for perhaps another sport or another episode of End of Sport on the higher education piece of this, which might be a great um, discussion for you uh, as well, um, Chen. But let's shift focuses, focus a little bit more back to your work. Because again, we want to stress for our audience that not only is uh, Professor Chen an incredibly, um, uh, uh, incredibly skillful um, uh, scholar, <clears throat> Um, but also incredibly well written uh, in, in terms of number and uh, an outlet. So an imp- incredibly, pers- uh, um, uh, incredibly sh- strong scholar. I'll edit that some of that stuff out. Um, I'll note that after. Um, in another intervention, you co-authored um, an ed- uh, a piece entitled "What Is Blackness to Sport Management," and you and your co-authors argued, "quote." Anti-blackness underlies and continues to plague sport management, particularly in the scholarship that is produced in the field. Can you explain a little bit of this argument for us? What does anti-blackness mean in this context, and how and why does it shape the the discipline of sport management? Um, I would say that I'm not black, nor am I of African descent, and I also was brought up to that authorship team to uh, provide some uh, additional support in producing that a piece. So I would, I would, you know, make a disclaimer that I could only offer my observation as someone who kind of studies the history of capitalism and the black radical tradition, um, which definitely inform my understanding of capitalism and its contemporary implications. So I would say that um, my argument would be that the sport industry is a a child of the modern organized sport is a child of capitalism. And capitalism is fundamentally built upon anti-black violence Mm -hmm. and racialized exploitations for centuries. And um, Sport management as a field is preoccupied with supporting the endeavors of existing ways of organizing sport activities in the capitalist economy. And I would say that it is anti-blackness, the exploitation of racialized labor, almost constitutes, I would say that it is a necessary precondition for the continuation of the sport industry mm-hmm. of the sport industry and uh, i would say that a host of sports sociologists have made uh, arguments on the the place of black athletes within the global s- sport industry that will not love them back mm-hmm. and uh, i would also draw from uh, two geographers um Blatzel and Wright, they they in in a geography article they talked about the co-constitutiveness the of global capitalism and anti-blackness from the geography perspective, in the sense that in the Americas, 
black communities do not belong anywhere in the sense or in the eyes of capital. They occupy empty space, open for appropriation. When capital is ready to appropriate their communities, they can be easily displaced through gentrification, as we can see in the uh, projects of uh, arenas and stadia in North American cities and black communities in the case of you know Afro-Brazilian communities, for example, in the South America they, and elsewhere, for sure, they can also bear the brunt of environmental harms of the process of capitalist exploitation. So um, I think the, with all that said, there is very rare recognition of the relationship of capitalism and anti-blackness within the sport management scholarship. And, and, and I would say that with the things that we, we teach, with the things that we produce, there is a marginalization of epistemologies and theories that critically interrogates white supremacy and normalization of Euro-Western epistemologies and theories. And, uh, and obviously, marginalization of black athletes' experiences, black scholars who are surviving in sport management institutions and uh, programs and in our professional associations. There is, there is an absence of epistemologies, theories put forth by black scholars and students and athletes in sport management spaces, which is, again, I'm, I'm talking about North America, a very white space. And it has epistemological consequences as far as how we conceptualize sport and how we conceptualize activities within sport. So this yeah. argument is definitely tied to the critique of capitalism and and it's just it's just inseparable. Yes. Okay, well let's let's continue down that road actually because you have another vital co-authored piece called Making Settler Colonialism Visible in Sport Management, which was one of your first. And in that piece you challenge the colonial logics of the discipline in explaining, and I quote here, how settler colonialism is simultaneously invisible and embedded in our academic activities, which also points to possible ways to change if we are to truly honor and acknowledge our relations with indigenous peoples on whose land we gather. Moreover, if we take into consideration the material and epistemic dimensions of settler colonialism, we can also see its presence and impact on the social institution of sport in settler societies, end quote. Could you explain to us what it means to understand the material and epistemic imbrication of settler colonialism with sport management and the social institution of sport and then potential pathways to decolonization? And also in this context, perhaps how we should grapple with questions, which you were mentioning already, of appropriation and tokenism in the academy. For instance, I recently returned from the Canadian Congress of the Social Sciences and Humanities, in which the theme was so-called reckoning and reimaginings, right? And the discourse of decolonization, of course, then in those spaces abounds, and indeed in which every session, literally every session, began with a land acknowledgement, which is also, by the way, what literal gov Canadian governmental committees also begin with. Right, And yet it's not at all clear to me what kinds of material and epistemic changes were actually occurring in that context. Absolutely. I would say that, let me begin with the material dimension of settler colonialism. And I think it's relatively straightforward that in states such as United States and in settler colonial states such as Canada and the U.S., the settler society is founded upon and continues to rest upon the ongoing colonial violence disposition of indigenous land um, instead of providing subsistence to tribal communities and their way of living. I'm talking about land. Land has been served as sources of extraction for the settler economy to sustain the settler population. 
with its many ecological consequences. So in sport, I think of the physical structures of sport facilities built upon indigenous land. And I mentioned earlier the gentrified urban centers in the case of North American cities um, where indigenous populations are present often result in further displacement of indigenous community members in urban centers. And we can also think of the mega events such as Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games, critiqued by Aboriginal Australians as the quote, stolen wealth games taking place on indigenous land. And um, also I would say that there is across the board deprivation of resources for indigenous communities to engage in sport and physical activities. And um, many of them, many of the indigenous athletes caught up in the tension between excelling in mainstream sport and resisting colonial values that are at odds with indigenous cultures and values. And uh, another example would be the extractive industries. In the case in Canada, a lot of mining companies, while digging deep and creating waste in uh, near indigenous communities, they come around and sponsor some sport for development initiatives on the same community that bear the consequences of their activity. Some of the material dimension, epistemology, secondly, I would say the epistemic dimension is that the collective effort of institutions such as the government, schools, churches, media, cultural industries, sport included, continue to reproduce and recreate a type of narrative that relegates colonialism to the past, as if the society we're living in has already transcended colonialism, as if many of the indigenous nations does not have a nation-to-nation relationships with the settler government. And in the case of sport, in the realm of sport, we see the appropriation of indigenous cultures, symbols, imageries, um, within within sport and and we we see the appropriation of indigenous cultures and symbols by sports teams in both Canada and the United States and it's important to know that the process of these appropriation happening were simultaneous with mass appropriation of indigenous land uh, in between 1887 and 1934, in the case of the United States, um, during the time where the General Allotment Act were in effect. And uh, obviously, there are also the tokenized acknowledgement, as you mentioned, Nathan, of indigenous culture and indigenous traditions in those mega events. And, uh, and, uh, your questions about is it is it possible to to utilize sport as a pathway for reconciliation and decolonization i would say that we need to first acknowledge that we working institutions of higher education founded upon colonialism in the case of land grant universities in the US but also other institutions uh, as well and it is where knowledge production legitimized settler colonial policies and certain types of discourse are permitted and some others are not. And my argument about sport management programs or settler colonial project is really straightforward because most of the sport management programs that we, we talk about are situated in the US, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. Last time I count when I wrote that article, there are almost 90% of these of entire uh there are 90% of sport management programs searchable on the internet are housed in those four settler states. 
And I would also say that not very different from your experience. When I go to conferences, not so different from your experience. When I go to conference space, such as the North American Society for Sport Management, um, at best, there are tokenized acknowledgement of the land, and then the party goes on. Then the, everybody just revert to, to normal to talk about consumer behavior and sport marketing as <laughs> right, if it right. does not being, is, as, as if it's, it does not take place uh, within, within the context of settler colonialism. And, and I have to also say that, you know, uh, the, the erasure in sport management research also emanates from the fact that the dominant progressive approach is this liberal multicultural civil rights approach that equates indigenous peoples within their their oppression their experience are equated as another uh racial minority groups and does not have a distinct claim to to land a distinct right to to claim for self-determination on the very land where colonial violence is happening. So, so I would say that I, I argue in that article there, there is a need for uh, people who are interested in and passionate about you know, connecting. Um, there is interest. Let me say this again. There is a need for scholars who are interested in addressing the injustices in, in the sport industry to connect settler colonialism with exploitation of workers, but also anti-black violence, slavery as interconnected processes happening in settler state. Because for a lot of indigenous peoples, diversity and inclusion within the settler state is not their political end goal. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was have to also say and, and maybe quote uh, two two people that I, that I respect. Um, first is Alfred, and second is Coulthard. They they are both Canadian uh, Indigenous scholars. One is Mohawk, the other is Dene, and uh, they they have extensively con- uh, they have extensively contextualized the relationship between colonialism and capitalism as a conjoining system. And Cotard goes as far as to say that, quote, for indigenous nations to live, capitalism must die. And I think, I think to your earlier comment about, about the, the tokenized land acknowledgement, I think that needs to be situated in this broader context of, you know, it, it, it's, it's within the current political economic system there is no decolonization with even millions of people announcing or enunciating land acknowledgement that ain't happening yes oh no, that's that is so well put and I, I love how in in making that connection between colonialism and capitalism like it really highlights why sport management at presently constituted is not equipped to be a decolonial project precisely because it is the project of management in the first place. Um, and I also want to echo your shout out to Coulthard's work, um, including his book, Redskin White Mask, which is a really, really powerful intervention riffing off and on, um, that people should be reading across disciplines. So uh, yeah, th- those, are, those are great points, Jen. And also the point that in Canada, um, just again, to just underline what you're saying, there's a really insidious way in which the discourse of multiculturalism does a lot of masking or obfuscatory work, both in terms of the anti-race, the racism piece we were talking about earlier, which is to say that like by coding everything through the language of culture and multiculturalism, we kind of it makes it much more difficult for people to articulate the racism that is still at the heart of this of the state and experiences. And also the fact that um, indigenous people are then coded as one multiculture among many, which is a very neat way for the Canadian state to kind of relieve itself of fundamental obligations for the fact that all of Canada is, of course, built on stolen land, which in many parts of the country, including British Columbia, does not belong to Canada according to dot, 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 
Canadian law itself, <laughs> right? So that's that's the kind of stakes we're talking about in terms of these questions around like what what colonialism means in a very material sense. And the Vancouver Olympics, I wrote a piece about this years ago. The Vancouver Olympics opening ceremonies were pretty an interesting uh, dramatization of this, in that we actually saw the story being told of Indigenous people essentially handing over Canada to the Canadian state to the white settler tradition in this very like consensual way, and then Indigeneity being again treated as a kind of multiculture so anyway i'll just i wanted to kind of put a point on a lot of those things that you said jen because i think those are great insights um and we're nearing the end of our discussion here but i also want this is just connect these these you know, these pieces are all connected to each other, but you've also written about the interna- the internationalization of sport management as a discipline. Now, and this is a really interesting point. Um, not, not necessarily something that I had thought a huge amount about, um, but recently, you know, I, I've come to see more and more that internationalization is often taken for granted as an inherent virtue, right, by institutions of higher education, as it is essentially a mechanism of market expand, expansion, even within the academy, right? So as opposed to it being a kind of like democratization or accessibility piece, really internationalization is just, it just shows the capitalist imperatives of our institutions of higher education, because like all capitalist institutions, they constantly need to expand in terms of their market access. And so we need to expand in terms of who the students are who are going to enter the institution. And of course, pay higher tuition fees because international students are subject to higher tuition fees. And actually, I note that in interviewing for my current position, I was regaled by a senior administrator of this institution's successes in internationalizing and recruiting beyond national borders. Right. And like it was so obvious to him that I would be impressed by this fact, right? Because he's going out and <laughs> enticing all these international students to come to this institution. But really, I mean, it's like a, it's a kind of con, right? In terms of this, this idea that you're trying to sell people on an education because it is very lucrative for the institution. But there's a big question about what the students are receiving in return for those high tuition fees. And what they're receiving is also connected clearly to a global political economy. Economy, right, that, that is bound by nation-state borders and questions of citizenship and so forth, which make potentially paying higher tuition fees, quote-unquote, worthwhile in terms of the access that they buy. So, in your article, Internationalization for Whom and for What, you interrogate these premises, arguing that we can understand academic or sport management internationalization through multiple theoretical ethical frames, including liberal critical, and decolonial. Could you walk us through these different models and explain what they tell us about the internationalizing project of sport management that is, and the project that perhaps should be? Great. I would say that, you know, let me, let me first say quickly about internationalization for our audience. You can understand as, you know, how to make a particular academic program more, quote-unquote, international in the, in the sense of attracting more international students, in the sense of, you know, including more, quote-unquote, international content in, in the courses, in, in the curriculum. And you can also understand that as maybe engaging in international collaboration in terms of having students uh, go study abroad or having an exchange trip in an institution elsewhere in the world. So those are major ways that educators and practitioners within higher ed talking about internationalization. So why programs, why institutions need to engage in internationalization. Uh, in the case of sport management, I, I also name them sport management in the global north, which is not a coincidence, which is not a, a, a surprise. And first is obviously, like you mentioned, Nathan, there's a, there's a, there's a demand for financial resources from these institutions as there has been continued shrinking public funding for a lot of public universities in, in North America, but also elsewhere, for sure. 
And secondly, as sport management scholars who engage in internationalization would argue, our sport industry is becoming a globalized industry. Therefore, we need to uh, equip our students with the skill, the competence to be able to work in an international context, right? So those two things, from the institutional perspective, we need, to, we need to attract more students. And second, from the knowledge production perspective, from the practical uh, implication perspective of our, our program, we need to train our students so that they are not those ignorant per persons that only know about American football, for example. They need to also understand how other culture works. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yes. So, so that sounds good. That sounds good. And I would say that I would say that to a point, to a question about the different ethical frames that I use to analyze the 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 efforts of internationalization, I would say that what I just said was more aligned with a liberal understanding, the liberal assumption of of internationalization in that, you know, international exchange, cultural, intercultural exchange is understood as inherently beneficial to all stakeholders. You understand me better, I understand you better, therefore we can better collaborate. And there are benefits in that. And it this this assumption does not question any of the current international mm -hmm. History, political system, economic system, but it's a ra rather uh, rosy mm -hmm. um, uh, 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 observation of you know, as long as we we increase exchange, we increase exposure for people, things will get better. So I would say the the implication for that, the implication of that to sport management program, I'm talking about the using the context of student development is that we can just focus on train graduates, develop young people who can adapt and thrive in the international sport market. But what is this market? This market is still primarily aligned with Global North economic, yeah. cultural, and political interests. It's not, it's not like all of a sudden Students coming out from a Global North sport management program will, will go and learn about um, the ways the sport is organized elsewhere in the Global South. So that's the liberal ethics framework of internationalization. And let's move on to critical ethics frame, framework. This framework recognize that not everybody benefits from the process of globalization or the globalization of the sport industry equally. Mm -hmm. And there is a need for more equitable distribution of resource, and there is a need for uh, respect for marginalized knowledges and voices. And so um, when it comes to sport management, you know, we can we can we can say that under this assumption, we need to develop practitioners who recognize that inequality. Instead of just treating everything as as good, more exchange is good. We need to develop practitioners who recognize the inequality and inequity within the international sport market, facilitating equitable distribution of resource. In the case of sport for development programs, a lot of those programs have those goals. And also value marginalized voices and knowledges. And in, in, in many of those sport for development programs, and maybe let's also include some study abroad programs, a lot of, uh, you know, well-intentioned folks, I think, good job there. They're also uh, doing, they they are also trying to let the students know that there is global power inequality inherent if 
You coming from a global north location, visiting a global south location, using sport to do whatever. So that's good. I think if our programs can reach that level, I think it's almost it's almost <laughs> the 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 ceiling of uh, in reality where uh, the programs can be at the moment. So the last one I use in their article is called the Decolonial Ethics Framework. It holds a more pessimistic, it holds a more, even more critical view than the last two, than the last one. It recognized that the sport industry and higher education, harking, harking back to what we discussed throughout the day, is that both the sport industry and higher education are embedded deeply within global capitalism. And the fact that some students can have the resources to go to school, study sport in the global north, this process itself is subsidized by global racial and ecological and economic violence mm -hmm. happening elsewhere. So what does that mean in terms of what does that potentially mean for developing graduates, training practitioners in sport management? Nobody knows, but I, ha I have to argue that we, if we use that train of thought, we, if, we, if we use that assumption, we need to recognize that the global, the, the global system of inequality obviously as a legacy of five centuries of colonialism, needs to be actively challenged. And the institution of sport that, is, that we know today needs to be actively challenged so that other ways of knowing and other ways of organizing our collective life can be respected, can, they can have a space to thrive. So uh, I think these are these are uh, uh, the the three ethical frameworks I I endeavor to use in talking about the phenomenon of an increasing desire for sport management to attract international students to bring in more international content into the curriculum and facilitating study abroad study abroad and international exchange experiences. So I think. It's, it's somehow connected to our earlier conversation that this is a sport management needs to be situated world historically as a phenomenon that has its genesis, has its origins, morph into where it's at today. And it's, it's incumbent to all of us who engage in the, in the field to, to shape and transform where it will be, where it should be in the future. Yeah, that's a, a great a great um, place to cap off our, our our wonderful discussion, Chen. But I have one more very simple or very easy question, or perhaps it might not be that that easy. Do you see and present yourself as a sport management scholar, whether that whether or not that's your uh, institutional location? Like, do you actually, if someone were to ask, what where what field or what study or what um uh area to work in do you respond i'm a sports management scholar uh i would have to say that depending on the different audiences mm -hmm. i would probably say different things so and so walk me through that what would you say in uh, if you were at a, a a sociology conference for instance um or if you were at a, a, a non-sport management discipline conference and someone asked you? I would say that, you know, let's, let's give an example of me communicating with another colleague mm -hmm. within my current university. I would say that I work in a sport management program because people <laughs> only know that yeah. the, the name of the program uh, as its in institutional location on campus. And uh, as far as I go to other conferences that are not sport management, I rarely have to answer that question. And uh, 
I would be I would be hesitant to label myself as such. I would call myself more generally a critical sports scholar, if that makes sense. Yep. And uh, and and I would I would also add that you know labels and titles are inevitably partial and sometimes deceitful, but it can also be used in flexibly for different uh, purposes for us. Yeah, great. I think I think we all do that a little bit. Um, I've always had this like love hate relationship with calling myself a criminologist, even though uh, crim is in my Twitter handle. Um, but that's for particular reasons. It shows the hypocrisy of um, how we present ourselves as well. But Chen, thank you so much um, for spending with a lot of time. And I think we could have gone on for forever with this conversation. But thank you so much for spending so much time with us and and just just providing such key critical insights about sports management that um, Nathan and I don't necessarily have um, because we are neither, uh, we're, we're certainly outsiders. We're not insiders in that field as well. So Chen, thank you so much for coming on at the end of sport. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And uh, I thoroughly enjoy the opportunity to talk with you too. And uh, again, I, I echo Nathan's point earlier, I think, this conversation is not meant to uh, degrade or bash mm-hmm. any sport management scholars or the field as a whole, but it's 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 almost as an as an attempt to uh, situate the field where it's at, and uh, and and I think timing is urgent. The timing is urgent. Mm-hmm.